0: This episode of Hong Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. What if I told you we could combine your love for premium cable with your dependence on online shopping? I bet you'd go pretty crazy. Well, time to go fucking nuts, because now we can. An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show... Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is back and I've been enjoying. I think it's doing okay. I think I think some older episodes are better, but this is certainly still good. I love Curb. Uh, I like how I put my review of Curb into this HBO on Amazon ad. They actually, Curb filmed right outside my apartment in LA like seven months ago, so I can't wait to see the outside of my apartment in the show. Uh, you know, this should be an ad for Curb. I wouldn't have said it was okay. I would have said it. Anyway, Amazon is offering a free seven-day trial for HBO. And you can get it by going to boardwalkaudio.com amazonhbo Amazon HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just $14.99 a month. That's a good deal for HBO. My parents pay for HBO, and I assume they're paying more than that. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Amazon HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO which is brought to you by Amazon.
1: This is a BoardWalk Audio podcast. On Comedy Writing. On Comedy (laughs) Writing.
0: Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com/oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button, shop on Amazon like you normally would, and we get a little kickback. Before we get to our guest, I want to highlight a couple things. Kyle Yang wrote a review of the podcast this week, which I won't read because it's you know weird and, and self-congratulatory, but it's about texting and driving, which we can all agree is extremely cool. If you like this show, please consider writing a review. It helps podcasts a lot, like, um, you know, Marin, uh with Obama. That was all reviews. Marin got a lot of good reviews. Obama saw, and he jumped on a good opportunity. If I can get uh, enough reviews, maybe I can get, like, uh, I don't know, Howard Dean uh, to talk about his time on a, on a UCB beta team. <laughs> uh, speaking, speaking of UCB beta teams, I'm... Going to be in the land of the UCB beta teams, uh, Los Angeles, by the time this comes out. I'm uh, doing Go Sketch Yourself at the Pack Theater at midnight that week on Friday, uh, January 7th, I believe. Uh, or, no, January uh, 5th, sorry. Uh, and maybe some other shows, I don't know yet. But if you come out to that show, January 5th, midnight at the Pack, I'll buy you a drink and we can talk for a little bit. Just, uh, you know, we'll shoot the shit. Uh don't kill me. Uh yeah, don't kill me. Imagine the headlines. <laughs> Low level podcaster murdered after advertising his location. Uh but yeah, I'll be in LA next week. Come say what up, DM me. I don't know. I love to talk to people. Just hit me up. Our guest this week is Dave Horowitz. He's uh, written on sitcoms like Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 and Mixology. Written a blog that became a book. That almost became a TV show Went through the development process And he's done a lot of stuff at UCB Including being on the legendary sketch team A Kiss from Daddy uh, With past guests of the show Neil Campbell and Nick Weiger They're one of the best teams I got to see them uh, before they broke up Before they, I mean, they didn't break up They just stopped doing the shows Because they got too successful uh, But I got to see them once And they were great uh, He's a really smart comedy mind And I really enjoyed this conversation So here is Dave Dave Horwitz <laughs> Uh,
2: Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alan. Uh, where are you from originally? Originally, I am from Sharon, Massachusetts. It is a very uh, small, small town, about 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes south of Boston. Okay. Um, so I, you know, people do make the distinction if they are actually from Boston proper. So I used to say oh, I'm from Boston or close to Boston, and if they would they would press me, I would then have to reveal I'm not actually from Boston. So I'm from Sharon.
0: <laughs> uh, well, what was it like growing up there?
2: Growing up in Sharon was uh, sort of idyllic and sort of boring, which I guess is, I guess that's good. I guess you want to have kind of a boring upbringing unless it's uh, thrilling, because I guess the other way would be like fraught with uh, danger or problems. But it's uh, it's a very small town. (laughs) It is um, sort of, there's a giant lake and that whole town is kind of around the lake. Um, It was famous for its air. So during, I I think, maybe the Depression um, or turn of the century, I I don't know what, I never remember when, but we had, like, this community center that's a 100 years old, and people would go and hang out on the porch there and, like, breathe in the air when there was bad air elsewhere, um, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Sort of feels like fake pop science, like how –
0: yeah,
2: Doctor, like, Dr. like Doctor Kellogg. Do you ever see the movie The Road to Wellville with Dana Carvey? No. It's like this, uh, it's really this weird kind of revisionist history thing about uh, Dr. Kellogg who invented cornflakes but also had all these weird right. wellness ideas. Yeah, I knew that. That idea of like. The women need to masturbate because they're demons living inside of them. Yeah. So he like invented a health vibrator. Anyway, that's what it, that's what in my brain it was like to go and be on the front porch of the community center with like less, <laughs> less masturbation.
0: Um, were you like into comedy at a young age?
2: Yeah. Um, okay. I was kind of, so I, I, um, my parents are pretty supportive, uh, kind of, I don't know, not oppressively. So, but, my dad had uh, Monty Python records and yeah. tapes. He didn't have the movies, but he had the um, <laughs> he had the like they they would do cast recordings and they would do just comedy albums that were sort of uh, audio only versions of the sketches and then also songs. And uh, I also watched SNL kind of a fair amount, but via their kind of best of tapes. And I had an aunt still do uh, who lives in Boston proper, and she won... one. I think it was over Christmas or New Year's or something, but Comedy Central, which was like kind of in its infancy at that point, I was like maybe 10, but they played every single episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus like consecutively. And she taped them all on three VHS tapes on like the, the like slowest setting. So like okay. the worst quality, but like the most, <laughs> you know, six hours per tape. Right. Um, and she gave me all, I think they made like 40 something episodes. And that kind of like, I say that it, ruined my life as a kid in the in the best way like she ushered me into being like a full-blown like nerd i guess there's yeah. just like nowhere else for me to go i remember doing like bits that i would memorize from the show at basketball practice in like fifth <laughs> and sixth grade and kids on my team would be like what are you doing
0: Like, what, what what bits would you do
2: do you remember i mean i want to say something is like as iconic as the dead parrot sketch right. but i think it was just it was really just kind of the some of the more esoteric stuff uh not something like i think i might have done the blackmail sketch that's like do you ever see that it's i think so eric Idle hosting a game show where like he oh, blackmails yeah. his guests um i think i did something like that but also the like the pepper pot stuff that terry terry um terry jones would do where he has like It's that stupid, it's that high-pitched voice where he's like wearing a napkin on his head. Oh, yeah, It's just the silliest, most viscerally dumb appealing stuff Mm -hmm. to a kid. And uh, I liked sports and I liked being social, but I think that was kind of the cutoff where any chance for me to do anything else was kind of out the window, Mm. which was, it's early for me, you know? I was like 10 or 11 and I was like, I guess this is what I like.
0: So when you're like that age, are you thinking uh, you want to do comedy specifically as a job? Or are you not even thinking that far ahead?
2: No, I mean, I had, I I wanted to, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an actor. Like I was, I remember being really mad that my dad wouldn't take me from suburban Massachusetts to New York City to audition for things. And he was, he, he could not have been less interested in it. And I was so mad at the time. And in hindsight, of course, it's, it's maybe a four and a half hour drive or a train ride and to make those inroads also i'm in my early 30s and so that sort of the way that time would have shaken out it was like pretty pre-internet or just dial oh, up right. and it would have been impossible and i just i, I thank uh, the lord every day that i wasn't a kid when youtube and webcams and everything were th- i mean if i was a if i was the age that most youtube kids are when i would like in 90 whatever if the, or if i was that age now i think i would my life would be ruined cuz either really? i'd be an, either i'd be an incredibly successful uh kid vlogger at 11 or i would be uh a huge dork with like 12 youtube followers <laughs> and no friends who never <laughs> left his room because i was just always doing bits and stuff cuz i was a kid i mean i bought when i um i bought a video camera and like my friends and i would make videos that was around that was like 14, 15. That's when I, I – i it was weird because I don't really think I ever really gave it any serious thought. I didn't give a lot of stuff super serious thought when I was younger. The whole – I mean, applying to colleges was an afterthought. Yeah. not Not that I – not because I didn't want to. I just – I don't know. It was weird. I feel like if I really ever embraced my true – I think I was always fighting it cuz if I knew from a, that early age that I liked all that stuff so much I should have just like gone all in because I probably would have had some sort of a head start but I just yeah I applied to school late and I would make videos with my friends but I never tried to take a class to learn how to make it or I never mm-hmm. like wrote anything even like I I you know there's people who do uh diary reading shows and they have like mm-hmm. volumes and volumes of stuff that they've written and you know I'll go home and every now and then I'll find something but it's not you know, I wasn't amassing huge volumes of prepared, embarrassing work. I was just sort of going, oh, "I like this. I like watching SNL with my friends. I like, uh, you know, getting stoned with my friends' hippie parents and watching Stop Making Sense." <laughs> Which, <laughs> wow. I, yeah, I, yeah. I had, I had uh, one of my high school friends' parents were um, hippie nudists, and they would go to a nudist colony in Maine the last weekend of every month. And leave their house completely empty. And my mm-hmm. friends and I would just throw parties and watch movies and be very artsy. My friend was like the first kid to see Pulp Fiction out of all of our friends. <laughs> first kid. And that kind of gave him carte blanche. Like he was going to be the guy that was going to make movies because he'd seen Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs.
0: It reminds you that reminds um, me of that Simpsons joke. Uh, it's like, um, like one of them is going to go see an r movie. And then they start chanting, Barton Fink, Barton yep. Fink. <laughs> Yeah, that's my favorite Simpsons joke. That's a very funny
2: joke. And I didn't get it at the time, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I got older and my oh, this is not a this is not a sexy movie.
0: So so you were making um videos, were they like uh short films or even like less organized? Than oh,
2: it was all just in camera edit stuff. It was yeah. all okay, I'm this character, you're this character, a lot of um that format that SNL does, where it's, which I think is funny that they still do it, where it's a talk show with two, with like a host and a co host and a guest, but that they still do now, which I always think is very interesting because they don't, you don't see talk shows right. like that almost ever. It's like a, almost making fun of public access and, and <laughs> it's true, yeah. there's, there's almost, they've almost uh, passed the point where they're even made at it all. It's like Steve Harvey has a talk show, but you'll see, you know, they would do that Bronx beat sketch with like Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler and I think, that was long after there was ever a talk like a talk show, but um, we would do stuff like that, just that kind of thing. We would be we would take the camera into the woods and do like a fake adventure, like documentary thing. It was very uh, not super high concept, but we didn't have any. We really didn't have access to editing equipment. Mm-hmm. It was like it was probably. I, like I'm not so old that it was impossible, but it was probably right before I'd say like a generation just below me would have grown up with either Final Cut or even iMovie because I remember getting into high school is when IMAX were happening and it was iMovie was possible. but I had a high eight Sony I think camcorder that you could plug it into the TV, but the the like the the ease with which you could edit video was just really not it wasn't there. Yeah. And I think, I don't even know what things cost by like a nineteen late nineties standard. But I don't know. Every now and then, someone will something will go viral that's like a Best Buy certificate. Have you ever seen that? Like a um, a Best Buy or Circuit City catalog from nineteen ninety seven that someone will scan, and I'll I'll just be blown away that it'll like camcorders were nine hundred, a thousand, twelve hundred bucks, yeah. and they're so, like now they would be a hundred dollars. Um, that, for the for the quality you get like these little digital. Uh, you know digital eight or high eight but yeah it was basically we turned the camera on and then we turned it off and it was over mm-hmm. we very rarely made any kind of cuts but they're i mean we would watch them and they'd definitely have those moments of really these really funny <laughs> i'm sure if i the camera doesn't exist but the tapes i know their tapes are in my childhood bedroom on a shelf labeled poorly and i know that if i ever went back and looked cuz i was we were 15 16 yeah. at the time and i was self-conscious then to even be on camera but i liked it and i know that they would just be so mortifying
0: <laughs> do you remember any like specific uh any specific videos that you made
2: oh my god um my memory is really really bad lately which is uh upsetting to me but let me let me think we made um i remember just a very dramatic uh and it was funny cuz it was my two friends who actually weren't Jewish. My t- my town is like 71% Jewish. It's pretty overwhelming, but there's there's a video of the two of them standing on one is standing on the roof of my friend's shed and the other one's standing on the roof of the house and they're singing fiddler on the roof to each other. <laughs> and it's it's really funny. Um <laughs> that one's fun. Uh there's a bunch of like kind of Bostony characters, just because that's sort of who we were around. And I also think it had a lot to do with the Jimmy Fallon, Rachel Dratch, SNL characters. Oh, right, yeah. But just that sort of, you know, yeah, hey, kid, what the fuck you doing? And like yeah. just like a whole family that talked like that. Um, but it was usually super bare bones. A lot of the times it was just us playing ourselves, improvising. But again, I haven't seen them. We we would watch them so constantly and we would make we would take them from the camcorder into the VCR and make compilations. Like, oh, here's like the best. Oh. Here's the best ones, and like they're on this VHS tape. Wow, I haven't talked about or thought about this in such. <laughs> a- I've literally, I, I was as interesting. I was like, I wonder what I'm going to talk about on the show because I feel like I've talked about a bunch of stuff on podcasts before. I've, I've not talked about this in phew, Jesus, 15, 16, 17 oh, years. What a scoop! Yeah, yeah, it's a real scoop.
0: <laughs> um, so. Uh, Besides those videos, were you like uh, doing any like performing stuff, like or any like semi comedy stuff?
2: Yeah, it's weird. I think that there was a real thread of apprehension and tentativeness because I definitely, I think if I had really given myself over to it, I would have been the kid who tried to be in musicals and the kid who was writing plays and the kid who interned at the public access station. But I didn't do any of that, and so I played soccer for a couple years in high school, and I sort of dropped out of it to do a play. The first play I remember doing or we did we did Little Shop of Horrors in 8th grade and I was up for the role of the plant. Uh Audrey 2. Um and my friend whose parents went away every weekend or once once a month last weekend of the month. He got the role of the plant and I got the role of customer number 2. Okay. Who just says, "My, what a strange and unusual plant." Uh <laughs> that uh, Christopher Guest played in the in the movie version of it, but um then a couple years later, I think it was a sophomore or a junior, I quit soccer to do this. Every year, there would like our school would go to a drama festival, and we would workshop a play that we would write ourselves, and it was so that was so exciting to me when I was a freshman, but I couldn't bring my I was like too embarrassed to audition. And then I think in tenth or eleventh grade, I I did and I we did it, and it was this weird sketch esque play about it was like. <laughs> This is all stuff I've never. But right. so yeah, I had this teacher who I've tried to Google so many times because she got fired from my school for hooking up with a student at a. She was so they were like sleeping together. She was he was a football player. She was their English teacher, and they were they were clearly having an affair. But he they were spotted publicly at a Dave Matthews concert. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Right? That's awesome. Uh, well, it's horrible. <laughs> oh but... yeah, it is horrible. <laughs> but he um, it's kind of funny yeah but so she i think fancied herself like i maybe am better than being a teacher i'm a playwright and so she wrote this play about uh it was like a parody of dante's inferno and instead of the different circles of hell it was the circles of acting hell like all the worst jobs an actor (laughs) could have so it was like uh here's like um a shitty teen movie and here's a soap opera and here's a bad theater audition and um I was just allowed, we were like workshopped a bunch of stuff and I wrote a monologue for it uh, and got to be in a scene that was a takeoff of a, like a hospital drama and a soap opera. And that was super fun.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But again, I don't, I'm not totally sure why that didn't click in my head and have me go, that's what I want to do forever. Cause I did have a lot of fun and I'm now thinking of the girl I had a like, hopeless crush on the entire time I was doing <laughs> that, that I never said anything to her. Uh, but, it but you know, I, I wasn't, a loser but I was not ever going to be a an athlete I was good enough to play you know JV soccer and maybe like one varsity game but I, it never I pretty much should have known at that point like this is what you should do this this right. is what you do um, but that didn't really start for me until I was maybe uh, probably halfway through my freshman year of college so where, where did you go to college? I, so I went to the University of Hartford in Connecticut for okay. a year, but I pretty much immediately transferred to Emerson in Boston.
0: Okay, did you not like Hartford?
2: Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, they they have a fantastic musical theater and music program, but I was a like English and film student, and I found out that you don't even get to touch a camera for a couple years. Yeah, and so I took. I find that to be true
0: at like most colleges, though in general
2: yeah i just didn't get the strong sense that there was a real i I was there was no alumni that were noteworthy there was no faculty that kind of we you know we would we would watch rear window and your your intro class and i'd just be like why am i this is i don't need to watch movies but then you find out that every film school you just watch tons of movies um (laughs) but uh I apply I, I immediately got a transfer application and made my second semester just about stuff I wanted to take and made up the rest of the classes later so I took uh two photography classes I think no one photography class um, and took just took up I was that kid I was that uh, freshman with his dad's old 35 mm camera <laughs> and I took a screenwriting class and I wrote a truly this is something I found recently that i f- I feel like I should I don't even know if it's funny or embarrassing or just weird, but I wrote a screenplay that was very of the time. Cause I went to some, basically my first week of school Nine eleven nine 11 happened. Oh wow. Yeah. And so I basically wrote a movie that was a screen <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. It was a, uh, so a man goes to a, uh, uh, the airport to go to on a business trip. And, this was like right around the time that they started talking about all the um, enhanced security procedures like after the attacks. And so it basically is this crazy, this guy gets detained cause he has a three hole punch in his briefcase and they think it's a bomb <laughs> yeah. and they detain him. And through this crazy series of events, he like his forehead gets smudged, his clothes get ruffled. He's like, I, I, I can't even remember, but he, he, they basically kick him out of being detained and a cult like, Thinks that he's their leader because he bears the same resemblance to like the picture on their prayer book or <laughs> okay. whatever, and they like blow dart him and take him to their compound. I wrote like seventy pages of this. That's fun. I like that. That's fun. It's kind of fun. I mean, there's no perspective. It's it's vi- I, I I don't know. I think the funniest <laughs> genre is like eighteen year olds writing uh, characters in their twenties and thirties. Uh, yeah, of course. Just they. anything you think someone like someone who has a job would say. <laughs> Just a lot of people being like... Actually, there is one thing in it that I recycled a couple times, which is that he's supposed to go on this business trip. He never gets there. And it's sort of just like the B story of the movie is that it keeps cutting to this business meeting. And because I had no business acumen and had no idea what happens at a business meeting, I just made it that everyone is so nervous to start without him that they they become paralyzed and they don't know what to do. And then they become so uh fearful that it turns into lord of the flies so because he's supposed to be leading the meeting they're all losing their mind and by the end you think there's like blood dripping down the walls but it's just uh ink from the from pens that have been running because somebody threw them against the wall (laughs) and somebody takes a potted plant and um and is like smearing the dirt on their face i and so i wrote up 30 rocks back a couple years ago and used that as like that's my b story oh, yeah. so i was able to use something out of it which is pretty cool
0: yeah that that's that's really funny actually you should um do a second draft
2: <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll revisit it it's called holy shit because <laughs> it's a pun um oh,
0: okay yeah i didn't get it at first yeah uh,
2: well it's not very funny <laughs> um but yeah i i immediately uh i transferred as soon as i could uh why emerson Emerson was just – I had a friend who was a grade above me who was going there and I went and visited him and thought that it was just the coolest place in the world. And I've come to – I affectionately refer to it as a drama camp with better equipment because <laughs> it's truly just – you go in and there's just people running up and down the halls shooting stuff on cameras and singing and there's five comedy troops and no football team. It's it was exa- It was like – I went there and had a great time as a, I think, high school senior. And my friend was a college freshman. But, you know, just getting underage drunk with a bunch of people that are cool and then seeing a – we saw a sketch show and it was the cool sketch team who (laughs) – charges two dollars to see uh your show everyone else was free and they used the money to throw a party after the show and i just i was i was and they put up christmas lights over the door frame <laughs> it's <was> like <laughs> i was so sold and they did they did uh, movie trailers but they had the little uh green band that said you know approve for all audiences oh, yeah. before it and i just couldn't because I just hadn't seen things being edited, I was just how, they, how do they do that? I thought it was a magic trick, and so I was pretty much like oh, I made a mistake. I sh- I need to go here, and I was right. So uh,
0: when you go there, uh, did you like know immediately you're going to do like the comedy stuff that's there?
2: Yeah. So the friend that I was visiting ran a humor magazine, uh, and so I immediately submitted to write for that, and I got in, but. And I think this is where the weird fear or embarrassment thing comes in. But I didn't audition for the comedy troops yet. I also think I wanted to see all of them. So I saw all of them. And I weirdly thought the cool comedy troupe wasn't so cool anymore. And the one that I really wanted to audition for, they did sketch and improv. And I auditioned for it and ended up getting in. And uh, the guy who I auditioned for was uh, my friend Mookie Blakelock. Oh, yeah. Who um, – Uh, real name michael but he let me in based on i I had a couple writing samples i had a like i'd already written a couple sketches i wrote a insane job interview sketch that was basically just your classic it's like will ferrell being dumb and a straight person being like you can't do that in here um but i wrote that with one of my friends that i made my high school videos with and i that one still has some Again, it's like it has no game. The game is just this guy's weird, which I think is the game of like every sketch you write in high school. But yeah, I was like 19 or 20 and wrote this sketch with a buddy and maybe one other one and submitted it and they were like, yeah, you're in. And that was the best possible. Probably learned more there than most of my classes, which if it sounds like a cliche, it is, but it's also true. It was really fun.
0: So were you guys like doing shows like once a month?
2: no it was we we did a bunch of improv shows this semester so we did uh we started doing short form improv which was i mean we so emerson has this building called the cabaret they have this big building called the little building it is uh several stories um it's uh it's the dorm the dining halls in there there's like a convenience store and in the basement there's a room called the cabaret it's next to the gym and i never went in the gym once all three years <laughs> i was there but i went to the cabaret a million times It's just small little cave that gets really hot and they have these folding chairs It probably seats 90 comfortably and uh, I don't know, 130 in a fire hazard way, oh, but wow. we, yeah, people would do shows and the, the walls would just be packed they had these uh, like gym mats that people would just sit on top of if they couldn't get chairs and they would stand in the back it was really like, it was a very star ish feeling where you'd like you'd print out your little handmade uh, programs and just like put on a cool mix that you made from before the show and just hand out these things to people and then everybody be seated and you just run back like behind the curtain and start the show. Um, so we did a bunch of... Um, like, having done sketch for years now, it's interesting to me that we only did one sketch show a semester but we did this big... Each team would do these huge blowout shows. They'd be... <laughs> I mean, in my memory, interminable. Like, maybe an intermission that was too long, but two acts... Maybe 15, 16 things because we would do videos, live sketches. And for the first couple years, my team did audio sketches because there was this weird, this like a, a hippie couple in Cambridge who had a studio, and we'd go and record song parodies and audio sketches. And <laughs> they would play these audio sketches and just put the, the blue of the projector onto the screen and turn the lights off and just play these audio tracks. <laughs> and Bizarrely, never put them online and never like sold or gave out CDs. I don't know why. I, it was such a weird... We, we did away with it. I, I think eventually people were like, this is, this is pointless. But uh, we did one of those a semester and I think three, maybe four improv shows a semester.
0: Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that you did like... The sketches were like two hours long a sketch show. Because I have a friend who goes to USC. He just graduated. But I went to his sketch show and it was like two hours long.
2: Yeah. And it's just too long. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, I directing and being on mod teams and stuff at UCB, like our shows are 30 minutes and even then you try to make it 26, 27 minutes and it always ends up being long and it feels long. That feels long. The fact that that those shows feel long to me is insane because I gladly put on and sat through hour and a half, two hour sketch shows. <laughs> yeah. I remember my last show, We I was like, let's just not do an intermission. We'll do a few, a few fewer scenes. We probably had 11 pieces and they were all four pages, but not in final draft and like word. And you would do the character name, uh, uh colon. And then the line oh, so yeah. it ends up being longer Four a full four page sketch ended up being eight, nine minutes long. It was just, I mean, we just, we had no director. We were just winging it, but thinking we were really good at it. Um, but there, I mean, some of it still holds up. Some of it's fun. Yeah. 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 So, uh,
0: after college, uh, do you move straight to L.A.?
2: After college, I thought I was going to move to uh, New York from Boston. I got... Uh, Weird. 9-11 keeps coming up. But I got a job. Um, a friend of a... Uh, my friend from school's dad's college best friend from Harvard is Oliver Stone's special effects guy. And okay. he was making his movie World Trade Center. Uh, and he hired me and my friend to be on the special effects unit of world trade center. And I was sweating it cause I had the things I had retained from my film studies classes where I knew how to direct a little bit on a student film level. I knew how to write, um, which is giving myself a lot of credit, but I knew the mechanics of writing. I knew the mechanics of acting. I knew how to stage stuff, but I, I, I didn't know about gaffing. I couldn't run sound. I was, I, the, being on the special effects unit, of anything, was terrifying. And I'm pretty sure... I don't know what exactly happened. The answer... We, we, so we met with this guy and all of these British hooligan dudes who were the special effects unit who did Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. And I'm assuming Dark Knight Rises too, but at that point I think only Batman Begins had come out. But it was... Um, we hung out, we got, had this fancy dinner, and he was talking to us. And I think I just didn't bullshit well enough. What he said to us is, Oh, there's this ordinance thing, Mayor Bloomberg says blah 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 blah. We can't like let enough like like more people down there. The job was gonna be we'd have to go with DSLR cameras and take composite photos of ground zero that the special effects team would then use to map the twin towers pre-crash. That was supposed to be the job. He was and I remember specifically it was eight hundred and thirty dollars a week was how much we were gonna get paid. And I couldn't, I was, that was the most money I'd ever heard <laughs> of in my entire life. And I was so excited. And then he just, the job just went away. And so at that point I didn't know what to do and was really freaked out. But my friends and I were doing this show that I had sort of engineered. We, there's this off campus, not at Emerson club called Improv Boston, which is still in Boston. And I, we started doing the show there called the Keith Hendershaw Experience and those were that is really fun. Like thinking about that, we had some really, really fun stuff. If you really, really root around on the internet, you can find some stuff. But it was it was uh Mookie Blakelock, myself, our friend Gabe Rothschild who lives in Austin now. He doesn't do comedy, but um uh, I can't Joe Mandy didn't do it, but he I think came back for one. Uh, our friend Noah Garfinkel, uh Harris Whittles, um shit, I'm forgetting a few people but we it was basically the premise of the show <laughs> so we booked for a four-week run the whole month of september uh right after the summer after i graduated uh, the fall after i graduated college and the premise of the show was there's this world-class entertainer he's not american he's an illusionist and we, we got like magazine like newspapers to write like weekly newspapers to write us up as this like this is going to be an amazing spectacle <laughs> put on by this, This I think we called him, he's a magician, he's an illusionist, he's a storyteller, he's like a provocateur. I forget what it is. The premise is, every single time he doesn't show up. And the show that happens is, this is why he didn't show up. And so it was this kind of Mr. Show-esque Again, this was like also 45 minutes to an hour, and we were like splitting the the bill with an improv group, and I can't imagine how pissed off they must have been at us (laughs) because we would – it was so disrespectful, but it was – the shows were so fun. It was an even smaller place than the one we did at school. It was completely packed, and people were so into it, and I was so excited that I had crafted these storylines, and I was working with all of like my funniest, most favorite comedy friends uh, in like a – in a setting that was outside of school – and people would – it was that kind of friends kissing your butt like, Dad, this is so cool, man. Like, I can't believe it. What are you going to do now? And a friend of mine came up to me and said, uh, I heard you're not going to New York. I'm going to L.A. Um, do you want to come? I'm going to, like, go and look at apartments tomorrow. Just kind of fly out there and poke around and then probably move there in a month. And I immediately went, okay, like right after a show, after the third show, I think. So I had one more and just went, all right, I'm done. And November first, which was probably three weeks later, I moved. I sold all my stuff. My this friend and I got an apartment. I knew that um, Gabe and Noah and uh, Garfinkel and Mookie Blakelock and Harris Whittles um, were all going to do the LA program, which you do your last semester of college in LA because I was oh, right. I was a year or like a semester ahead of them, and I knew that they would all be out there anyway in February, and Just so if,
0: down the road.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, this was... A, Probably a different building. Yeah, yeah that building was... That that building, the Emerson LA building is insane. and looks like... <laughs> it, a, it is looks, ridiculous. It looks like a weird space station. <laughs> uh, but this one was, I think, in Burbank and was much older. But they would mm. put everybody up in the Oakwood Apartments, which oh, are prominently featured in uh, Netflix's Love. Yeah, That's I where... stayed in the Oakwood Apartments. Oh, did you? When I first moved, yeah. I spent so many nights there. Because when, <laughs> when those guys moved, we would go and write to perform it at Sketch Open Mics. And I would be there... Man, I had an 11 to 8 PA shift. 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I took that shift because I would go straight from work at 8 p.m. to the Valley to the Oakwood and write with those guys until 2, 3 in the morning. Wow. And then go home and go to sleep and sleep till 10 and then go to work and just repeat, 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 repeat. I probably did that for an entire year. Um, But... Going doing it like multiple times a week. Oh, yeah. We, I was there. I mean, that was my whole life. We would wow. go, yeah, because back, I mean, this was um 2006, and the comedy landscape was a little different. UCB Franklin had been open for about a year. There were these kind of indie venues, the Hollywood Hotel on Vermont, which used to be a Ramada Inn, had. This weird... Josh Faden would do this conceptual weird stand-up show that you could do sketches on in the basement of this Ramada Inn that was like called the W.C. Fields Lounge. The least <laughs> conducive wow. environment to comedy. It was awful, but we did it. Uh, El Cid used to have a show called Garage Comedy that um, this woman Val Myers and Kulap Vlaisak hosted together. And our group, which was called... We we kind of took the unit that did that show in Boston. We called ourselves Hendershaw. Just uh, narrow to ten. It was... Um, Gabe Rothschild, Noah Garfinkel, Mookie, uh, Harris, myself, and uh, I feel like I'm forgetting one person. Did I say Gabe? Gabe, Noah, Armin, oh, Armin Weitzman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, And it was super, super, super fun. And we would just do, we would do Not Too Shabby, which was at that time at UCB Franklin at midnight. And we would write all week for this sketch we were going to do because Neil Campbell and Paul Rust kept watching us and being like, you guys are great, keep coming back. They were, everybody was really nice to us. We were very, very, very weird. Just like, yeah. usually weird for the sake of weird sketches that were about nothing. We're very, very gibberish. It was a lot of, like, everybody's sensibility kind of butting up against each other. Uh, you know, the nonsensical Harris and Armin. The, like, uh, Mookie and I were a little bit more, like, let's be a little bit more by the books, but have our fun, too. And it just ended up being a total free-for-all, but it was super fun, and we would practice in the parking lot at like 11 45. I was just uh, like the, the, what is the Oaks now? I forget what it used to be, but we would just be in front of there just loitering with our scripts in our hands at 11 30 at night. It was such a weird time, but we did, that was like, that was, yeah, that was my whole life. So when I moved out here, I knew that I had that kind of security blanket. Um, like I knew my friends were coming. So I basically had all of November, all of December and part of January to just sort of, not twist in the wind, but I and I knew a couple people out here, but um, that sort of entailed like hanging out with my friend who was who I'd had one class with at Emerson, who was a cool actor guy, who would pick me up in his Acura with a PBR in his uh, cup holder, and he would drive us to Commerce Casino, and we <laughs> would play poker because he was like, "You play poker, right?" And I was like, "Uh huh," and we would I would go gamble with my PA money at age twenty three, twenty two. It was really I don't know, I don't know. I'm so glad I didn't die. That guy got sober pretty quickly, right after I stopped talking to him. But I did—I wow. did, I did stand up a couple times um, out here by myself. I was trying to kind of get in the scene, but because I, I did stand up in, in college, but I was really just sketch was always my focus. So when those guys got out here, we started taking classes and we started doing the open mics and bit shows, and we like we rented out a this building called the Westwood Brewing Company, which. I don't think exists anymore, but it just closed. It's in Westwood near UCLA, and we did that. We like hung up fake curtains and did this whole big hour plus long sketch show there, um, and that was fun. And then we finally got to do a you know half hour slot at UCB that uh, Neil and Paul directed. Oh that wow, that was super fun. Yeah. So, uh,
0: what classes? Who who were your teachers when you're taking classes?
2: <sighs> My teachers were. I had. Uh, I think Will McLaughlin was my 101 teacher. Um, Brian Finkelstein was my 201 teacher. He's... He's the best. Brian Finkelstein's yeah. amazing. He, I think he still hosts them off. Um, But he's he's unreal. My favorite... Like, my favorite... Uh, I mean, favorite... In hindsight, but my favorite memory that I was absolutely mortified by in an improv class was... I was in a 201 improv class, and the most just this beautiful girl was in class with me and I liked, I had a huge crush on her, but, um, like, kind of, you know, an improv crush, like, I wanted to be in scenes with her and I would talk to her, but I, I think I was, I was either dating someone at the time or I was just like, this was not an option for me, mm-hmm. But, but I had fun. And I thought I was hiding it well and we were in the middle of a two-person scene, me and this girl, and Brian stopped the class, or he stopped the scene, he went, all right, freeze, freeze right where you are, don't move, don't move, both of you don't move. And he... He asked the class, he's like, "What do you guys notice about this?" And somebody raised their hand and went like, "Oh, they're sitting the exact same way." And it was true. Like, she and I both were leaning back in our seats, pushing up the, the like front two legs of the chair off the floor with the same leg, and our hands were in the same place too. And I was like, "That's so weird." And he goes, "That's exactly what I wanted you to notice. See, these they're like mirroring each other. So when they're he just went on this whole rant that was like not meant to be embarrassing, but it was basically like their energy feeding off. He was basically saying like, this guy really likes her. And so he's like mirroring what she's doing. I'm like, Oh God damn it. But it was super fun. Um, I had Danielle Schneider for, I think maybe three Oh one and four Oh one. Uh, and she was great. And then I had a, I think I took a special class with Billy Merritt, like a 500 level and they were all really fun. I never was like, I auditioned for Harold's once and got a call back and, uh, thought i like kind of killed the audition was like oh shit okay and i have a pretty bad back and i was on painkillers the day that i had my call back and i just whiffed my call back it was just like not great but everyone was really nice to me it was like i they were like you can come back you can take a extra level for like intern credit if you want to like intern at the theater a little longer and like super super nice to me and and i i I don't think that was a, a matter of I was just, like, scared to do it, like I talked about before. I took an extra class and was like, I think I just really enjoy sketch more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like, been my main focus yeah. the whole time. But yeah. it was, those classes were fun.
0: Were, were you taking sketch classes, too? Or were there not as many at the time? There were
2: not as many. I took a, yeah. a very ill-fated uh, invite-only class with Matt Besser that uh, really, <laughs> it really crushed me.
0: Oh, man. I just didn't get it. Can you talk about it a little bit?
2: Oh man. Um, yeah, I mean I was coming off of the group I was in was just very silly, very creative, and overall, like in my opinion, not good. Like not good for a paying audience, you mm-hmm. know? I think there's a way to sort of wedge your sensibilities into sketch world. But that group that I was in where we did a show that Neil and Paul directed and uh, Jared Grody was in it. And then it was about four guys who were all in love with the same girl and Natasha Leggero played the woman we were all in love with. It was really fun, but it was very sort of dadaist, ist very, very nonsense. And we started writing another show. And this is like, I mean, I'm skirting over, like we just, we constantly were fighting. Like it was like oh, how really? the state talks about just being furious at each other. It was like the dumbest fights that I've ever had in my life but the most passionate and intense because they were all over why would she say that why would she talk about like a baby's (laughs) dick for five minutes it doesn't make any sense it can't be in the show yes you can here's why and um so I kind of came off of that sensibility and took this class uh with Besser where it's very like this is how you write game and I just it's so funny as someone who I feel like I can grasp it now. I just didn't have it at the time Mm -hmm. and I would just try and try and try and at the very end I got it but he sort of gave me the vibe that it was like a little bit too little too late but I felt so I was so accomplished I was like I felt so accomplished that I had figured out the. I remember the sketch I wrote it was like a guy who tries to propose it was so simple it was a guy who tries to propose to his girlfriend and like all of these external forces keep keep preventing him from doing it. It was I mean it would not have been a fun sketch to see in a show I don't think but it was like Mm -hmm you know, the guy gets down on one knee and the waiter like trips over him cause he doesn't see him and like sends a tray flying everywhere and like a rest, a patron gets like injured and then that, whatever that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I felt so accomplished because it got laps in the room and I felt like, Oh my God, this heightened perfectly. Right. And he, he was like, yeah, <laughs> it's the most I got from, him. I was like, okay. But, uh, yeah, I didn't let it like get to me and I kept, I kept at it because it's like, you know that was that mm-hmm. was my focus. So so how long would
0: you say it was until you really felt like you had a good grasp on game?
2: Honestly, I mean it's a little bit. You know I wouldn't even say it's shameful because I think there's actually nothing wrong with it as long as you're like exercising a muscle. But I I was on a mod team for a year. We're called the Kiss from Daddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we after a year we were taken off of Mod Night and given a monthly slot with the Birthday Boys, and so. We were a team for years. I think we, counting Mod Night and our monthly show, I think it was something insane, like seven years or eight years or seven and a half, something really, truly unreal. And it's like, you know, it's a lot of heavy hitters on that team, but it was, you know, Mookie and Harris and I had all come from this group, Hendershaw, and then Neil Campbell, Paul Rust, and Mike Cassidy had come from a group called Fireball Deluxe, and then Eva Anderson and Nick Weiger and Alan McLeod were all just sort of like, Mainstays around the theater who were standing out as being good sketch writers and performers, and uh, it was sort of like a powerhouse. And sometimes I just felt like, oh man, I'm like not like getting it as 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 quickly as all these other people. And uh, I think I just after a couple of years just sort of gave myself a break and went. I think I might be overthinking this because the best sketches have the simplest premises, and that's around the time I started directing Mod. So I started directing a team called New Money, which is, I mean, they're retired now, but some of the, you know, the pedigree is nuts. Uh, Noel Wells, who was on SNL, Paul Downs, who just wrote and started in Rough Night, um, Mary Holland, who's on Veep, uh, Echo Kellum, who's on Arrow, Barrick Hardley, who's in every single commercial and movies and TV and stuff. He was just on Master of None as uh, Eric Wareham's Doppelganger season two. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jess McKenna, who was on Party Over Here, Nicole Byer, who had her own show and still has her own show. Um, and, you know, writing wise, it was like Lauren McGuire, who writes on Wrecked and Tim Former and... guest
0: on this podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, she's the greatest. Yeah.
2: She's the greatest. Kyle Bosman, who uh, is a, like a video game streamer now, but he's like one of the funniest sketch writers I've ever seen. Just so unreal funny. And uh, Jen D'Angelo, who uh, wrote on Workaholics and you know, got on the blacklist for her screenplay. So coming into like a seasoned room full of people who were like, had been coming off of working so hard in class. Cause I never, cause pe- I, I sort of wish I had taken the curriculum, but kind of focusing and just really looking at these sketches instead of the pressure of having to write myself. Cause I was still doing a kiss from daddy. But once I started directing and just sort of staring at my computer at these other, like having to give people notes, cause I was scared I wasn't going to be able to do it and instead of holding myself back, I said, I think I'm just going to go for it because my friend asked me to, my friend, Alison, uh, Augusti, who she wrote on Seth Myers and Brooklyn nine, nine and making history. is just like a fantastic, uh, writer. It's so funny. And she kind of gave me the confidence. She's like, we need a director. And I think you'd be great. And you have the experience. And I really took to it. I really, really, truly, really like it so much. And, um, it's very time-consuming, but it's awesome to see a show come together from the, its infancy and have people pitch you ideas. And so I think when people would just come to me and go, I want to do a sketch where, you know, a guy uh, goes into a video game store and asks for a video game that doesn't exist. Like, you just ask for a name, and the guy's like, we don't have, a, we don't have anything by that name. And then having to go, okay, like, what are the beats of that? How does that heighten? Uh, how, what's, like, an organic way to kind of get into there? What's the reaction that this guy could have talking about it? Like, what are some joke pitches for fake titles of games? All of those things, in my mind, made it so much easier to conceptualize the Mm. idea of game and the idea of... Because it's just a structure. It's just literally a a little boring, homework-y type thing that exists so fun stuff can happen. And that's something I say to, like, anyone I ever coach or direct or teach or anything where I say, like... You don't have to feel daunted by game. It's literally just something you can... It's just little, like, uh... It's, it's just... A, it's, like, a the smallest framework. Right. Like, your yeah. sketch is insane. The jokes are hilarious. But we don't even know what it's about until page two. Just give me something halfway through the first page where somebody says... Hey, man. Uh... What's a good example? I don't know. There, there's a sketch that Tim Neenan wrote called... Um, shark eulogist and it's <laughs> the premise is it is a funeral and it's so sad it is a six-year-old boy got like snatched out of the air on a boat and eaten by a shark in one bite and it's so sad and everyone's so emotional about it but the unusual thing is not that he got eaten by a shark it's that every single person eulogizing him <laughs> cannot get over how amazing it was to see because they all witnessed it and so it's like it's literally oh, it's really funny it's literally this is the most horrific thing that ever happened my son was a perfect angel i miss him so much this is this is the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone but when that shark straight up owned my son it was one of the sickest most raw pure things i've ever seen and then it heightens to the point where the mom is the most distraught about it and then says that she had an involuntary orgasm watching it because it was so unreal. Um, and it was, you know, when you have someone like Mary Holland on your team who can say, uh, what did she say? I was overcome by an involuntary orgasm and I came and then she just, and then she doesn't know how to end it. And she goes, thank you. I'm in a weird place. And then just goes back and takes her seat. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I'm. I, I like. I'll come back to examples from sketches I've directed more than sketches I've written, which is interesting mm-hmm. because when I'm teaching, I used to be like, I can't teach. Like, I don't have like this gigantic portfolio of like knockout sketches. I have some that like really worked. Um, I did this show at the pack where they read my, they performed my SNL packet from a couple of years ago. <laughs> okay. And it was, I was so embarrassed because I hadn't even looked at it since I sent it in, and I was like. Oh, this stuff. This works. This stuff works, and it's such a weird. I don't know. I think it's just a confidence thing because sketch is so silly. Right. It's I the the phrase I coined when working with New Money is "little plays for nerds," <laughs> uh, and that's as affectionate as I can be. Like I'm, I'm a little nerd, and I like little dumb plays. Like, and I would, and I coined that because it, I was like, you guys aren't writing sketches; you're writing little plays for nerds because they would write these insane characters say these crazy things. There were a couple of people on the team who just refused to write game and I'd have to sort of wrench it out of them. Mm. And they would take on these theatrical kind of larger than life ideas and statuses and they would deliver it in five pages. I like, go, oh, this has to be three and a half, this has to be four. And it's just I feel like just having to kind of get my hands dirty helped me be less self-conscious about it. So when I, I feel like when I started directing that team and I've since directed other teams and I currently direct a team called Mr. Bird um, at the theater, I think that's when it really kind of started to click for me. Mm. Um, and which is strange. Cause I was, you know, obviously on teams before that where I was writing and performing, but I think removing myself from, from that part of the equation where it's like my name on something or my face on something. Um, Cause I did okay before, you know, I was no slouch, but Seeing the work performed and knowing like oh I wrote the opening two lines and they wrote the rest of it but I know that like my suggestion is what's gonna make this part work or I gave them the black outline or I told them where to stand or I put this in order or I cast this or I decided we were gonna have a transition here that like kind of tied these two together it felt really good and when I saw that that was working it made me realize oh I truly I, I know what I'm doing now for confidently for uh maybe the first time I mean it was yeah the the hesitation was kind of gone interesting
0: yeah cool uh when you were doing the monthly show uh how would you like generate
2: ideas for that um you know it would be a lot of it's funny I stopped doing stand-up you know years ago because I was never so passionate about it that I would like Cause I'd be driving by billboards and go, that's a dumb billboard. And I'd write down like the the tagline and think about doing it on stage or do it on stage and think, why did I, why did I do that? You know, like why, what, what kind of truth do I have to tell? But with, um, with sketch, it's like a lot of those ideas just come from what's, what's annoying to you or what's like a thing that somebody said that was really obnoxious. Like, I mean, an example that I have that way is, uh. I did a sketch where it's like a couple getting a sonogram results and like a bunch of, they get a bunch of tests back and because the wife's going to have a baby and the doctor tells them that they failed the, like, he's like, your uh, what is it? Like amniocentesis looks good. This something screened is fine, but, uh, there's one test that, um, the results are a little bit troubling. Your son, uh, failed the cool test <laughs> and they're like, Oh my God, what, what do you mean? And then it just like, yeah. Then it just goes, like, the list just becomes, uh, what is it, like, he's going to be the kind of guy who uh, sees movies, like, a month after everybody else, so he's always kind of playing catch-up, and he's the one who plugs his ears and goes, no, spoilers, and, like, runs out of the room. And then it gets to the point where, like, they show a sonogram, and they're like, I'm so sorry, I, I, I don't even want to show you this, but I feel like I have to, and the baby's wearing a fedora in the son like, as a fetus. <laughs> And then it's like, and this is from the other angle and it's holding a banjo and they're like, no, or oh, you know, it's holding a ukulele. Um, and that to me was just like super easy to heighten. Cause I was like, what are some, what are th- douchey things I don't like about people? Yeah, yeah, um, And like, I don't know, there's a, there was like a new money sketch where it's literally everyone's saying goodbye after like a, a, a dinner party and they're out on the patio and a, a sports car. Vrooms by Like Or a motorcycle Some kind of just A really super loud You know that thing Where people just Rev their engines in LA And just drive by And so it's just This thing of It's the trope of Everyone in the In the group going Oh Oh you're so (laughs) cool You're so fucking cool Um And that's There's four beats of that And I think if it was Just that it would be A a great sketch on its own But Uh Because that's sort of like I can't remember even How it was pitched But Clearly that's something That the writer thinks Is really annoying Mm -hmm. And then – but then the level on top of that is that one of the guys – the guy in one of the couples is – like has always had a thing for the girl in the other couple. (laughs) And so weirdly in the – like while the noise from the car is dying down, he like says the wrong thing and then everyone's really – feels uncomfortable about it, Uh, which which is just sort of like the icing on the cake. Like it would have been fun to just see three beats of that – of people freaking out about that car, but it needed a little more. And I think the fun thing about mining – experiences for sketches like a lot of times it is just like here's an awkward thing from life that's weird that you can then like use for uh you know fodder and i think that's like i mean that's what makes stand-up fun is that it's like what's on your mind what's bothering you and with sketch it's like what's eating like what do you think about all the time or what's like a phrase you can't get out of your head and then if you bring it to a group of people it's really easy to just go like hey how can i mold this into something Mm. and that's always like I think that's always when the most fun sketches come from, where it's like, you know, one of the writers on my team just got a dog and is obsessed with uh, with her, obsessed with this dog. It's a really cute dog, but she's she's a painter, and she paints a lot of <laughs> portraits of her giving birth to her own dog. Oh, I, mean, wow. she's, she's a, I mean, she's like a uh, very avant-garde, she's an amazing artist, but I can't remember if I told her to write the sketch or if it just came out of like a group discussion, but she just was so obsessed with this dog that we uh it turned into this pitch about a woman who adopts a dog and when she's going to take it home from the shelter she asks the shelter worker uh if the lactation consultant is going to come out and help her (laughs) and the guy's like what are you talking about and the guy plays it so straight and like a couple lines in she's saying well i don't i i'm afraid i'm going to be bad at it i've never done it before it's my first dog and he's like oh you don't Actually, think you have to breastfeed your dog, and it just because this woman just will not budge and thinks that that's how it's done. And yeah. um, I think at the end, I mean, there's a line in it where she goes like, "Oh, now you're telling me I can't fuck my dog?" Because <laughs> at that point, you've heightened beyond the point of right. needing to be in reality anymore. But that, to me, is like the best part about any kind of comedic performance. It's that release where it's like, "Oh, I can't stop thinking about my dog. I should write a sketch about it. I can't stop thinking mm-hmm. about this obnoxious." Uh, how obnoxious people are when they're whizzing down my street in their sports cars, like making people scared they're going to get killed. I want to do a sketch about that. I want to do a sketch about, you know, every douchey trait that someone has. Uh, You know, I think it's like, I think if you don't at least come from some place of truth, even if it's just a kernel, if it comes out of complete, there are writers who, they come out of nowhere. It's just like, here's an idea. I don't know where this came from. And to those people I say, I'm jealous of you go away because I don't normally I don't wake up and have an amazing out of nowhere idea it's usually just here's something that happened to me and let me twist it a little bit Mm. or here's something I truly deeply feel I never wake up and go like oh here's an idea for you know uh, an elite squadron of superheroes and uh, this is the planet they're battling and uh, these are all their love interests and these are their powers if somebody put a gun to my head and gave me a lot of money I could probably write that but it's it's, (laughs) I'm more apt to be like, here's a story about a guy who's like in his thirties and, you know, has some gray hair and <laughs> doesn't know everything that he's doing in his life. Uh, but I gotta switch it up every now and then. Maybe he'll be like in his twenties or forties. You know? <laughs> um, so moving on from sketch, you had a uh,
0: a blog called Deal Breakers, which then turned into a book, which was then optioned for TV,
2: right? Yes. Did we? Talk, no, you just looked it up. I looked it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. What what, what was like, uh, how did that start? Oh, man. Um, I was really good friends with uh UCB alum um, improviser named Marissa Pinson. We hung out a bunch and would just kind of rag on each other. And truly, I mean, you know, it is aging us. I think this was maybe 2009 or 2010, but... It was truly before everyone would say a gross thing about someone, a deal breaker. Like it really was such a weird thing that I just – it wasn't something that people were saying a lot. But we were saying it about each other and one of our friends um, said, you guys should do something with that. And I was already – I had had like a – I had a now deleted live journal in college. (laughs) And uh, so I was no stranger to like oversharing and doing stuff like that. So Tumblr was – Sort of getting to be popular, and we looked into it and sort of taught ourselves how to use it. It was a super easy interface, but slowly we just started compiling a list of all the reasons you never want to date someone. And, like, some of them were based on ways we'd make fun of each other, and some of them were just sort of, again, pulling from real life stuff that was annoying to us. And so it would be like uh, you have a super – dirt like, for a girl – like, from the women's perspective because it was kind of equal – time between men and women it was you know um you have a super dirty bathroom or you have nothing in your fridge or you try to like awkwardly propose that we have a threesome together or um you don't listen to me or you talk through movies or Mm -hmm. and and it was basically the format was a stock image then a heading that would be uh your dirty bathroom like that's the deal breaker about you your bad breath you're a bad kisser um you know, whatever, uh, your empty fridge. And then underneath, it would be sort of a first person, like you're talking to the person, you know? Uh, look, we've been dating for a month, and the sex is out of sight. Something, 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 pithy joke, pithy joke uh, re- reference. one, Just one problem. Uh, when you're sloshing your tongue inside my mouth, like you're trying to clean my gums, It's just it makes <laughs> me want to puke. I'm, I'm, this is not yeah, verbatim, yeah, yeah. but it's like, that was the format, and... I don't even – it sort of did predate like vloggers blowing up. It was sort of this weird new thing that was becoming a possibility that you could blow up on Tumblr. And I don't even know how people found us, but we started getting – oh, it's because you can reblog. So if you liked an entry, you could hit reblog, and then that entry would show up on your own personal Tumblr. And people just kept doing that until we were getting hundreds, and then we were getting thousands of followers – kind of in the first couple of weeks, like it really exploded. And we started getting um, interest from publishers. Right, Someone from Random House emailed me personally and I thought it was a prank (laughs) because I couldn't, I was like, what what is the, how? Because I was 25, 26. It was like, it was very soon for, it just felt early for any of that stuff to happen. And then in one of these weird, sort of circuitous paths we had a couple of false starts but um how did this happen oh my I had a manager and my manager knew a lit agent and the lit agent mm. hit us up and we're like it was like let's shop this around can you write a book proposal so we wrote a book. neither of us were working we were very doing that freelance I got a writing job or an acting I gave my books like a couple of commercials back in that era and it would be like, oh, I can li- we can live off this and then go on unemployment and she, Marissa was a PA at E. I think she worked on The Soup um, and we would just meet up and write and it was like sort of that same going to the Oakwoods till 3 a.m. kind of vibe of just, okay, we got to get this, we got to get in this Google Doc and write this book proposal and then we would do it and uh, I think um, Random House, it didn't work out because they had something similar to it but Running Press was the company. They bought it, and they um, they paid us not a lot of money, uh, <laughs> to the point where we were paying for an illustrator to do our pictures out of our advance. Oh wow! It, yeah, it's a very it was people were like people were treating us like we were rich, and it was so funny because i I wanted to I wanted that to be my life, but it was not my life. And so I was like, "It is. It's really cool. We'll see." And then. <laughs> We got interviewed. This is the this is where it gets starts to get weird and loopy and all over the place. We, so we were interviewing the LA Times for Valentine's Day. They were doing some like we talked to bloggers about dating do's and don'ts, and these guys have deal breakers, and they're gonna have a book. And a guy from a company called Radar Pictures, who I don't know what they made, but one of their um, claims to fame is they did the remake of the heartbreak kid with ben stiller and malin ackerman uh and so yeah they did features but he was like i want this to be a movie and he was the super oh man this real weird dude i don't (laughs) know anything about this guy man i gotta look this guy up i mean in in your if you are doing this kind of weird Stuff out here, you will meet people like this man. It was a man who he was in his 50s, real like kind of wind burnt face, uh, sort of like feathery graying hair, um, you know, uh, shirt like button down shirt tucked into jeans. And I don't know what his role was at the company, but he wasn't a producer, he wasn't a creative guy. He had some business where he sold or rented jets. He was like clearly a rich... I think he was just a money man. But he saw us and he was like, I gotta have these guys. And so he would take us to like the Chateau Marmont where we would be whisked away to drink cocktails. And we would valet our shitty cars. And he wanted to... So he had to sign this shopping agreement. um, Which was basically... We're gonna take your property out to a bunch of film writers, and they're gonna pitch uh, treatments, and we're gonna make it into a movie. And we were like, "Holy shit, okay." And um, I can't remember how, but at some point, they were entertaining treatments by people uh, that had written they'd written treatments to like pitch on trying to write this as a as a movie. And somebody pivoted and said, "What if it was a TV show?" I, I think at this point. God, I don't even remember exactly, like, this point. But next thing I knew, it was now being taken to, like, networks and stuff. We only had a manager at this point. We didn't have agents. The agreement that we had signed was basically, like, you're signed on as consultants. Uh, You'll get, like, $3,000. And if it becomes a TV show, then we'll see. And we were, like, okay. And then uh, it ultimately went to ABC... And then Nachka Khan and Laura McCreary, um, who are like TV veterans, they've both been on American Dad for years, they like won – ABC won the bidding war and assigned them to write it. So Mm. they wrote this pilot. They took us to – So with the bidding war,
0: did you not get any of that money? Oh, no. No, 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 no,
2: no. I think – I believe Radar Pictures got them. I don't – I really don't understand. We were so young. We were just like, we'll sign anything. Please, 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 which is a note to everybody – uh, have people explain the contract explicitly. If there's a bidding war, there's probably more money in it for you. <laughs> Please look into it. Um, so ABC won out. Khan uh, and McCreary wrote the script and it was an adaptation of our book. And our book is a 200, 225, maybe 50 page book with like 200 reasons you never want to date someone with kind of pithy mixture of like Real shitty, cheap clip art and like hand drawn uh, illustrations, which are cool. And it's funny, but it's like you can't weave a narrative out of it. Right. I mean, I guess you could more easily weave a narrative out of it than like make a movie about the emojis that are in your phone. But like, right. you know what I mean? It's like it was not, uh, it didn't seem like it's, I thought it was going to be like happy endings. I thought it was just going to be like we're going to take the spirit of this book, which is kind of snarky, kind of cynical, but ultimately like maybe happy because there's always hope. And it's just going to be applied to like – it's like friends. It's about six friends. They wrote a script. They took us out to dinner and asked us about ourselves and how we met. And it they wrote a script about two bloggers named Dave and Marissa <laughs> who have a blog about deal breakers. <laughs> and we were like, why would – like they sent it to us when it was done. We didn't know anything about it. We were, not, we were consultants in that they took us out to dinner, got us drunk on margaritas, fed us tacos, and made us tell them stories what? about ourselves and our, and our dating life. So that script – was done and um it was decent i just read it and went i can't imagine that they're gonna go for this and they didn't so abc passed and in doing so they picked up the khan's other pilot which was don't trust the Bee in apartment 23 and we interviewed to write for it but we didn't have a pilot so we wrote in three days, we wrote a 19-page short film that was basically like the A story of a pilot. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we like threw it together. It's like, that actually is awesome. I would love to make that sometime. It's really very, very funny. I love it. Um, I'm thinking about it right now. Maybe I'll read it when I get home. <laughs> it's uh, But yeah, it was a really like valiant effort for people who'd never written a script together. And um, they brought us in, they loved us, and there just wasn't enough money to hire two lower-level writers, even though it was like a package deal. So... We ended up not getting hired, but then two months later – this. so this story, like, obviously – this is – so when people – people used to ask me. They still do, but people used to ask me, like, how do I write for TV? And I would be like, I don't know. And they go, well, how did you start to write for TV? And I would tell them this story. <laughs> and I would go, do you understand what I'm saying? There's no possible way that you could replicate what I did because so many weird things had to happen, like – you have to be interviewed in a newspaper and then someone has to like <laughs> see your name at the bottom and like find your email address and like look into your stuff and then take you to the Chateau Marmont. And then there has to be a bidding war, but then like your show has to not go. So a couple months after Don't Trust the Be had started, one of their writers went on maternity leave and they needed to fill the slot. And because we had this relationship with them, they asked us to come in and we wrote for over two months, I think. I think it was like, yeah, two, three months on this show. It was super fun. It was a real crash course because they were already in the middle of the season and it was incredibly fun and when you don't have an agent, agents will look at the rosters of, of TV shows and see who's writing on them and go, they don't have agents? So they would just call our office looking for us like, CAA, UTA, William Morris, uh, uh, ICM, And we would just – we met with all of them in a week, and it was this crazy wine and dine, like, blowjob party where they're like, you guys are so great. And we're like, you just want our money, don't you? (laughs) Um, But we got agents off of that, and then when the show ended, they were like, you got to write a pilot now. So we wrote an insane pilot that was super fun about a girl who, like, gets out of jail and goes and lives with her brother who's, like, a cop. Or no, her brother who's, like, kind of a pushover, and his wife's a cop, and she's, like, crashing in there – basement but she's like a real train wreck we had a really fun time writing for don't trust to be like this female protagonist who was just wild and nuts and we sort of just went what if what if we wrote someone who's even crazier and so we did that and that got us a job on a show called how to live with your parents for the rest of your life um which was run by claudia lano who is awesome she's a real character she is i think in her early 50s and she still lives with her she like bought a house with her parents who are in their 70s her mom and stepdad who are also showbiz people so she lives in that house and it's huge and she has one half and they have the other. And that's what kind of what the show is about. And that got canceled. And we wrote another pilot, uh, that got us staffed on a show called mixology, uh, which was run by the guys who wrote and directed bad moms. And, and um, it's
0: both you and Marissa as a writing duo. Yes. Okay, okay.
2: Um, and then, sorry about that. That's right. I am so loud on this podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine. Um, yeah, we wrote a pilot that was, again, I feel like we were ahead of the curve in this weird way because we wrote a pilot called "Adultish," so Adult-ish, okay. uh, about this sort of, it was a, a couple who had just moved in together, a couple who were kind of on and off again and tumultuous but like in love And their sort of single, hapless best friend. And so the single, hapless best friend was based on me. And the couple who just moved in together was based on her and her now husband. And the fiery, feisty couple were based on just people we thought would be funny to write a show about. Um, And it's sort of about them being like, we're hovering around 30. What do we do? And it was kind of just like a year or two before that was everything. Like I think it was like the same year right before new girl maybe or no new girls probably was was out already but it was that sort of vibe and i literally i went into urban outfitters like a month ago and they literally sell a shirt that says adult ish on it spelled adult dash ish it's crazy <laughs> um but that got established a staffs on show mixology which was so we wrote on three abc shows in a row uh don't trust the Bee, um, to be um hello with your parents and mixology and they all debuted after modern family slot wednesday nights at nine thirty, oh, wow. all and they were all the replacement for the the previous one yeah and you know mixology was we met so many great people um it was a real exercise in just like pitching and pitching and pitching and pitching it was not like the most positive i mean it was you know the show kind of came and went and it was not super well received but the premise was cool it's like a show that's supposed to take place over the course of one night so 13 right. episodes one night didn't really tie the whole story together perfectly, but um, that show got canceled, and then we had a boss on um, uh, on Mixology who then got hired to run a show called Resident Advisors, which is a Hulu show, uh, and he hired us, and that was a super small room. We didn't even have an office for half of it, and then for the second half of it, we wrote at the new Emerson campus because oh. we had all these crazy uh, breaks from them. We actually shot there. Because the show is about a college, right? Yeah, which is insane. Because the show does not look like it was shot at a college. It looks like it was shot at some weird industrial warehouse. Because <laughs> it looks like a concrete spaceship, even though it's actually a college. It's very weird. But that was a super fun experience. But like very quick, we like busted out. I think seven episodes that sort of all tie together uh, really quickly. And that was on that premiered on Hulu, and I think 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, my partner and I split. Fairly amicably, and then sort of like I don't know. What, what do you uh, I'm, do? You have more bullet points to uh, talk about? Um, not, nothing about that. I mean, you,
0: you did go through everything like very nicely, so there is not too much for me to do here. You've been great.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, this is sort of like this is the part where I don't know. I mean, like I am not sure if this is like advice if it's like for people to listen to go like this is how you this is like what it is like to be Uh a writer but I this was sort of around the time where stuff got a little um not complicated but like my partner and I split up uh there was like a thing about a job um again fairly amicably but uh I parted ways with uh her as a partner and also um kind of caught a weird break where because that happened my agent dropped me and I was like oh shit okay because neither of us had solo samples at that point and there was like a bunch of other stuff going on and I kind of needed one and I think this is like and you know if this was a if this was more Mark Maroney, we could delve into the psyche of a self-hating writer uh and then go all the way back therapy style to like the kid in high school who like right. couldn't get himself to like audition for the play. And then I would cry, and then you'd get all so many people would listen and go, Oh my god, did you believe Dave crying on that podcast? <laughs> but the real thing is like, you know, it was a super stressful time for me, and that was sort of like prime time to get back in the game and just throw yourself into it headfirst and go, I've got this opportunity, I can't let it go. Um, I shouldn't let it go. Uh, And it just sort of like slipped away. Mm. Um, And so that was like a hot second, like a little while ago. And things are much, much better now. But I think there was like a a brief moment where I was like, oh shit, is this, was this my shot uh, to do this? Like, and it's gone, but it's definitely not. And so, uh, not to like force advice on people, but it's like, it's it seems like the first part of that story is such a climb where it's like, Oh, and then what happens? Like you sell your own show and like it's on the air for five years. And I think a lot of people do have that experience who are fortunate. And I think some people are very fortunate to have a couple writing jobs because some people never have any. Um, so it's interesting to think about like, wow, what if that was the last time I ever worked as a writer? Cause it wasn't. Um, and now there's like a bunch of cool things that are, maybe in the process of happening that you sort of just have to cross your fingers. And I ended up being able to write a script on my own and people like it. And so, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a very, um, I don't mean to yada yada the part that like totally sucks. Cause there is a part of mm-hmm. being a writer that totally sucks. Like not to skirt over the, and I didn't really have a sample. And then it kind of like went away for a little while. You know, I, 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 I don't think I. I, re, I think there was some hubris there where I was like, oh, it's finally happening. I've been in town. I've been in this yeah. town long enough. Like, I'm, boom, I'm hitting this. I'm hitting that. I got reps. I got jobs. Um, you know, I'm going to cool dinners and parties. And um, I think that you can never stop creating because mm-hmm. some people are just preternaturally gifted in terms of they can talk themselves into any room and they can like fire off a script super easily or they can use like their old sample and you know, you can wedge yourself in or you can get to be, um, you know, you can like leverage your best friendships and like, and and use that to get writing jobs. And sometimes it just works out that way. And I think just because it didn't work out for me that way, specifically, I had a hot second where I was like, Oh, is this the end of the line? Which is such a weird, not okay thing Mm -hmm. to think when you're not, old like if i was 70 and i started working when i was 60 and was like i don't know i'd be like oh there's nothing else i can Uh do maybe it's over but i think it's never over if you have the right brain for it if you just keep writing right and it's almost like i'm saying that to myself as much as i'm saying (laughs) it to anyone who's listening but it is cool to sort of bounce back and get knocked around because i think i Maybe didn't appreciate what I truly what I had when I had it, Mm. because it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was like, Oh, I got to write on this show. This character I have to write for is kind of dumb and like I don't know. I mean, such a weird. I wish I was writing for this show. It's such a. If you get a job, that's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) And I'm saying that to anyone listening. If you get a writing job and you stick your nose up at it at all, you're a jerk. And by that, I mean. I have been in my life a little bit of a <laughs> jerk, and I will never do that again.
0: Well, and that must be crazy, too, because when, when you split off from a writing duo, it's kind of like you're back to square one.
2: Totally, totally. Yeah. It's sort of like you have to um, re-meet yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I was going through, like, a really messy breakup r- romantically at the time, too, and so I was trying to write... A script about that as it was happening, as my uh, writing partnership was ending, as I was trying to get a sample to my manager and so I did... Uh, to my agent. And so the I, I feel like the time span was like a month. I had a month ah. to get this done and I just couldn't do it. Mm. And I think to my credit, that's really hard. And against... to like a knock against my agent is like, I don't know, maybe give the guy that you took commission on four times a little bit longer because shit's serious right now. But, um, I was sort of able to weave the themes of what I was thinking about or trying to write about, uh, into a different script later. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I don't know. I'm really happy that I'm really actually grateful that all this happened. I'll be a lot more grateful when like everything that's sort of in the process of happening falls into place. If it, if that happens at all, but it was definitely, um, it was definitely a rough time to be so in this position of privilege. I mean, when it like when there was a deadline article that said like ABC's developing a thing with Horowitz and Pinson and The Dealbreaker, people would come up to me at UCB and go, can, Oh my God, can I have a job on your show? And I would go, Oh, I, I hope I get a job on my show. <laughs> uh, that was insane. That pilot that they wrote about us, they had our names. And the th- funniest thing I remember about it is that my character was a bartender who was dating this like artsy, flighty, street artist, like Banksy-type girl. Which is really funny, because that's what they pulled out of talking to me that I date uh, histrionic, artistic women. I'm like, well, that checks out. Um, But in one scene, I'm behind the bar, she's on the other side of the bar, and she's sketching on a napkin, and she slides it over to me, and it's a picture of me, Dave. With a character, Dave. And the character, Dave, goes, oh, babe, this is really great, but are my eyebrows really that big in real life? And the punchline there is that I have gigantic eyebrows, and I remember messaging my manager and went, "Can I at least audition to play this guy that's being <laughs> written for me?" And she's like, "Oh no, maybe." That's such a. It's the business is so weird.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what would you like to be doing next? I guess have like your own show.
2: Yeah, there's um, yes. I mean, <laughs> well, here's the thing. There's uh. I don't. There, here's there, and here's this confidence thing because there's a couple. I'll say this: there's a couple things that might happen,
1: right.
2: and I don't say that in a way where I'm delusionally being like, wink, wink. Uh, keep your TV on for the next little while if you want to <laughs> see this face. But it, but there's a couple fun, cool opportunities that have been brewing for long enough that. It both feels like they will happen and it feels like they will never happen. Mm. And so I would love to have my own show, but I really just want to keep working as a writer. And I've been yeah. able to do that consistently for the better part of 10 years. And to me, that's, I don't know, if you if you talked to me like two years ago, I probably would have like yeah i want my own show i deserve my (laughs) own show (laughs) but but the fact that um you know steadily working for tv uh digital stuff like all that stuff has been so cool that i just would love to keep doing that forever Mm. and i have stuff that i think would be great that would be my thing but it's it's a lot of uh i don't know i think it's other people's turn to tell their own stories and I, i i think it's I would love to help other people tell their stories, Um, and if other people can help me tell my stories, then that's great, because it's, I don't know, it's funny to follow any TV writers on Twitter, because when their episode of a show comes on, invariably every single time, it's always, they always, and it's the the right thing to say, but it's just, you could, you know, it's very, it's got, it's a cliche at this point, but for good reasons. It's, it's, they'll go, my episode of, you know, Veep or Brooklyn Nine-Nine airs tonight, um, and then parentheses really though, it was the entire room. Everybody rewrote every joke, yeah, yeah. like the script, like, you know, there's nine different drafts, but my name is on it. Um, and that is how I feel like most accurately describes the experience. Like you're just in a room helping one or two people tell their stories and you're kind of a, a, a cog in the machine, but you're a very important one. Right. Uh, so whatever position I am in the machine, I want to be in the machine. I want to stay in the machine. Yeah, I'm in the yeah. machine and I don't want to leave.
0: Yeah, that's how to put it.
2: Ideally, it would be my machine, but I'm happy to be in <laughs> someone else's machine.
0: Uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up okay. with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote. So this is a sketch pitch, so I'm going to pitch you a sketch. Oh, great. Um, all right. So I say this like almost every other episode, but I've been recording a lot lately, so these these pitches are getting
2: worse and worse. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, wait. Wait, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Why, um, why would it be worse and worse if, you, if you've been recording a lot lately?
0: Because I every episode I end with like a sketch pitch or something. So I've been, I, so I've been like. So, wouldn't
2: you be getting like more experience and oh, notes, or are you saying you're like giving yourself less time to rest? Less something? time. Okay. Okay.
0: So I, I got it like for you know a peek behind the curtain, which I think I've said many times during this segment. <laughs> i uh recorded an episode like three hours before you got here oh okay so I, this is like can two, you
2: can you say who it was
0: it was with uh, laura wilcox oh cool yeah oh awesome so uh so yeah so this is like a yeah i wrote two i wrote two sketch pitches today got it she liked the first one okay we'll see how this one goes okay
2: great <laughs> So, the movie Airbud World Pup, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a very easy target with dog jokes. Oh, great. So, already I'm in.
0: Well, the, the that movie, uh, I read an article today. That movie ends with Brianna Scurry, the U.S. women's goalkeeper. Yeah. Uh, getting hurt during the penalty shootout. And then she gestures towards Airbud to go on goal, and Airbud saves. Uh, Airbud saves the final shot to win the World Cup for the women's team.
2: Okay, I feel like I know where
0: this is going. Go ahead. Um, so Airbud's not even a woman. Airbud's a male dog, right? Anyway, that's just like kind of a side thing. But that's just something. <laughs> yes, yeah. that was my first reaction to that. So I'd want to do a sketch about like like the backup uh, goalkeeper. Just being like, what the? I I wasn't like, why can't I go on here?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, look, yes, I truly I think that's like, because uh, first of all, I don't know what the actual footage looks like, but it's pretty easy to superimpose someone in. So if you literally just have someone on the sidelines going like, "Coach, I'm re- I'm ready to yeah. go in. What's happening? Like, I'm I'm in uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is like a good version of it. A uh that that backup goalkeeper going home to her family after and yeah she's like... It, like or or if like if it's a spouse or a loved one or something and they're like they couldn't make it for some reason like how was the game? you show you literally show that the little clip, yeah. that little clip and then it fades up on the stage and the the partner's like, how was it? How was it? She put the fucking dog in and then <laughs> yeah. everything you just said like, first of all, it's not even a girl <laughs> yeah it's a boy dog <laughs> it's against the rule it's against the rules in so many ways like just somebody being so incredulous and being a see that's kind of like i don't know i love i'm a real sucker for that of like taking a super ridiculous thing very seriously uh-huh. like this character being so upset because right. her dream is to play goalie is to like sit in and be a participant in a game at the World, it's is it at the World Cup? It's the World Cup final. Yeah, the World yeah. Cup finals. Like it was, everything was on the line. I I know I'm not getting in there unless the goalie is injured, and she was injured, <laughs> and they put a dog in. <laughs> yeah. What is happening? What is what is reality? Should I should I quit? Maybe maybe soccer is not for me. Um, I also thought you were going when you said he's not even a girl. I just made me think of having to disguise the dog as a girl dog. Well, and what it made me too. think of what it made me think of it was just putting a wig of a lady a human lady's wig on Airbud. <laughs> um, oh that'd be kinda funny too. Uh or or and then, oh, and then the first thing I thought when you when you said uh it's about she gets injured and Airbud has to go in is that uh Airbud loses. Like Airbud okay. doesn't say Airbud's a dog, and yeah, yeah. so then the coach is like, "Then the then the end is the coach going, you know, I, uh, I feel like I feel like in some way this is my fault." And they're like, <laughs> "Coach, it is your fault. You put the dog in." He's like, "I know, I know, I should have," but the dog's pretty good at soccer. That's like, still a dog. Yeah, yeah. Like in this reality, they're not phased or impressed by the fact that Airbud can play soccer because it's like. No matter what, even if it's the best dog that's ever played soccer, it's not going to be better yeah, than a human. right. Um, that also reminds me, have you ever seen uh, Most Valuable Primate MVP? A while ago. The best thing about that to me is that they speed, because the chimp is so slow on playing, on uh, ice skates that they speed up all of its footage. So all the pe- players around the chimp also are moving really fast. And it's really, <laughs> oh, really weird.
0: Yeah. Oh, I gotta check that out again. Yeah, it's insane. Wow. Yeah. When 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 you like think of like uh like kind of it's kind of like a half baked idea a little bit. Do you then do like what you just did and go in all the different directions of it and then try to decide like what's the best way to go?
2: Yeah, well, like especially in, especially in directing for me, and mm-hmm. I think I, and I think I've known like I've had the mechanics of 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 sketch and scene writing for a while in in my brain, but I think the thing that directing really helped to unlock was just like. If I had an idea that I was really precious about as a writer or performer, I would pitch it. And if it didn't go over like gangbusters or if people didn't kind of immediately start jumping on it and giving me other ideas, I don't know if I would be super passionate about it anymore. I'd be like, oh, I kind of like my way and oh, I'm going to be a grump about it. And I definitely came out of that a little bit as time went on. But learning to not be precious as a director is way easier because it's not your idea. So if you brought that pitch to me, unless you said, this way is my favorite way right. and I can't stop thinking about it. Then we'd work on that. But you just went, as a, like, a way in, this is like something I thought was funny. And then I go, oh my god, this immediately makes me think of these three things. Mm-hmm. And then whatever people kind of gravitate towards or whatever you as the writer would be like, oh, I like this version better. Then we would go, all right, let's game that out a little bit. Um, I think a, a meeting or like a session can go a little bit awry or a little bit unproductive if you just – if you spend 10, 15 minutes going through every possible iteration, oh, like, right, yeah. oh, if we do it this way, like, these nine things could happen. If we do it this way, it could heighten in these 11 ways. Um, it's really, I think, better to just go, here's three things off the top of my head, and then see what people like the most, and they go, okay, great. So it's about it's about this woman coming home to her partner, and it's a very serious thing. She hangs up her soccer cleats. <laughs> she hugs her partner. Her partner goes, how was the game? She uncorks a... A bottle of bullet rye she pours herself a stiff drink knocks it all back and goes how the fuck do you think it went <laughs> she put the dog in <laughs> yeah. all right brian Well, were you not watching the world cup uh that's like and then if people laughed in the room you go okay great let's talk about that then it's a really serious sad scene it's emotional it's ridiculous because you just watched a clip from Airbud world mm-hmm. pup a kids movie and now you're treating it like deadly serious and that angle feels funny to me. And then if someone went, oh, I don't know, I kind of like the idea of putting a lady's wig on a dog. And I go, okay, let's talk about that. Um, so yeah, I definitely don't like extrapolate every single idea, but I kind of, I take uh, i take what feels fun. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for coming out. Anything you want to plug? Oh boy. Um, you know, I, these days, <laughs> I do this, I, I have started to uh, indulge a—I'm not selling this well. I make fake uh, T-shirt designs, and I just—and oh, okay. I just use them. I just use the like the layout of Instagram stories, and I just take—I take stock images of T-shirt models oh, okay. that are wearing that are wearing blank T-shirts, yeah. and I just put text and image and stuff on their shirts, and I I put them up on my site, and we have three for sale, and some of it goes to charity, but it's mostly just like dumb jokes I make uh, oh, that's put them cool. on T-shirts. So it's. Uh, the Instagram is dope shirts for sale and the four is the number four. So it's at dope shirts for sale. Number four. Okay, cool. That's yeah. Awesome. Check that out. And I'm, I'm everywhere online. You can just search my name. Cool. All right. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of on comedy writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes. Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo and Borlock audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week!